Hi, everyone. I have with me here today uh, the inimitable Jeremy Johnson. Um, Jeremy, to read his official bio, such as I'm looking at at the current moment anyway, uh, Jeremy uh, Johnson is a scholar, writer, and editor for Revelor Press and founder of Nora Learning. He received his master's in consciousness studies from Goddard College in Vermont, uh, where uh, I live. Love to talk to you about that where he studied the intersections of media ecology, the structures of consciousness, and depth psychology. He's the author of Seeing Through the World, Gene Gebser and Integral Consciousness, and an editor for Mutations, Art, Consciousness, and the Anthropocene, uh, current president of the International Gene Gebser Society, and no stranger to probably most of this audience, um, you are a pretty um, for, forefront voice, uh, to put it in a strange way, of the in the metamodern conversations and integral conversations. Um, I've been watching you do some really interesting, uh, like roundtables and just one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews that have been really fascinating. And so I thought that is a human being I would love to talk to. Um, so yeah, I was thinking uh, we could do a couple of things. I'd love to um, one maybe fill out that biography a little bit um, just because uh, it seems very interesting. And from what I've seen online, I haven't really uh, heard you talk too much about your experience with your, um, with your, uh, say your studies and, and how you kind of got into these different fields and that sort of thing. And then honestly, from there, just kind of transition into a pretty open-ended conversation. Uh, you've written some really cool stuff um, about metamodernity, metamodernism, um, and kind of it's, you know, in your interaction with uh, integral, but you know, you go pretty deep. And so um, I'd love to, to get some thoughts uh, too about your views on what we might call metamodern spirituality, which is something that I'm very interested in. And uh, as, uh, as a thinker, I'd love to get your thoughts on it too. But so kind of just starting off from there. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear um, from the get-go about your time at, at uh, Goddard College, which is actually right down the road, more or less from me, uh, doing, what was it, consciousness studies? And uh, i right. curious about what that, what that curricula looked like and how you got into that. Well, first of all, thanks, Brendan, for, for having me on your show. It's, uh, I've been uh, digging into your content uh, just in terms of the videos you've already put out. It's very thoughtful uh, and very excited to, to be jumping into this conversation with you. So yeah, Goddard. No one's asked me about Goddard in all of my conversations as of late. So uh, that's refreshing. Um, yeah, so so I, I went into that program because it was really the only program that was sufficiently interdisciplinary enough while still being under the umbrella subject of consciousness studies and being well-rounded enough to kind of give me a taste of like uh, the, the cognitive, neurological, neurophilosophical, and then also the more Jungian aspects of, uh, of the field, because uh, the, uh, the main program director there was a Jungian, um, uh, Francis Charette, I think he's still uh, heading up the program. So it was just a very interesting sounding space where it was very self-directed and that was very attractive to me at the time. Um, basically design your own curriculum with the mentorship of different advisors. And uh, you got to pick your own advisor per semester. So everyone would have a kind of a unique emphasis that would give you a different perspective on your work and your overall research and thesis. Uh, so yeah, that's why it's kind of a, 
hodgepodge of things, right? Uh, media ecology. I was very interested in McLuhan uh, at the time and, and media studies, but I was also interested in, of course, Gepster and integral studies um, and just generally kind of bringing those, those two main themes together. Um, and then also having to learn about depth psychology through all that. Uh, it made for an interesting experience. How, how from there did you get to, it sounds like you'd already read Gebser, um, but like, how did you kind of find your, your way from there to the, the spaces that you're in now? Yeah, so, so I, I did find Gebser through uh, kind of a meandering road of, of, of being interested in integral theory and Ken Wilber's work which I think at the time, it was just like 2005 or so, and he was just coming out with Integral Spirituality, appropriately enough, uh, a 2006 book. Uh, I was in undergrad, I was studying sociology. Um, I was, again, kind of had a predisposition towards the Goddard approach. I was doing um, individualized studies in my field, um, wanting to do, you know, just write a thesis for the semester and not take as many coursework in different classes, but really kind of focus on bringing together different domains. Um, so Wilbur was very appealing and very extra academic in that sense of like what he seemed to be doing and bringing these different disciplines together, I didn't see really happening in academia. And it's interesting that even though Goddard for me was like 2010, 2011, uh, and, and transdisciplinary programs have really cropped up all over, their importance or their, their, their import in academia still seems to be on the periphery. So, which is frustrating. And I, I also find that the most interesting conversations are ones happening between specializations and not within the specializations themselves. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a deep advocate of transdisciplinarity. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so for me, I, I found Gepser by way of Wilbur and really it was an undergrad where I went, okay, I need to be reading who Wilbur's reading. I wanted to basically check his footnotes and his endnotes and the sources that he was referencing and synthesizing and go and read them myself. So I went ahead and I read um, Sri Aurobindo and Teher Dechardin and then uh, Gepser as well. And really like, and I've mentioned this before in a few few conversations that um, there was something Gepser was doing in his, his, his approach to what integrality means that just in a felt sense kind of way, felt like he was doing something different than Wilbur. And I couldn't really unpack that and articulate that immediately. It took it took really, you know, 10 years or so to really get a sense of what he was doing that was so different. And I think, you know, I would by shorthand for me would be Gepser is working in a phenomenological way with cultural studies and cultural evolution in a way where he will illustrate by way of a particular work of art or poetry um, a, a felt sense, an aesthetic sense of what he's talking about really comes to the fore. And he uses that to illustrate constantly what he's talking about. So it really grounds you and also forces you to become more literate with the works of art that he's citing, you know, um, in terms of, let's say, the development of perspective or um, some kind of ancient artifact or cave painting. He's really getting you into the senses and into the aesthetic perception that he's talking about in terms of the history of consciousness, which can help, I think, that as a reader, really ground you in what he's talking about in a non-abstract way or non-rational kind of way. So that's how, that's what I would say now in terms of what made him so appealing. Um, and there's more to it than that. But how do you see, um, do you, do you think that Wilbur's work, like, do you look at it as a sort of distortion of Gebser, or do you feel like it's doing something different or that it's sort of in the vein of what Gebser was doing, but just 
going a different area with it. How do you kind of uh, think about those two thinkers in relation to each other? Oh, that's a question. That's, that is a question. Um, for me, okay, so is it a distortion? I don't know if I would use that strong of a word, but I would say it's a reinterpretation of Gebser for sure, uh, what Wilbur does. Um, particularly, there, there's a few clarifying points that Gebser is making in terms of what he's doing with attempting to describe the history of consciousness. He says he's not working developmentally. Um, he's not working in terms of higher stages of development, of consciousness development, or an expansion of consciousness. So he has a lot of very fundamental qualifiers that Wilbur doesn't. Wilbur is very interested in creating a developmental spectrum of consciousness and seeing things as progressive and moving forward, right? Transcend and include. Um, so, so their overall orientation is very different. Um, I, I think Wilbur was already coming from that point of view in the 1970s with spectrum of consciousness, and he was looking to create, you know, a developmental model. And when he read Gepser, I think he saw uh, that, you know, from a particular interpretation, you could look at the structures of consciousness that Gepser articulated, and that some folks who are familiar with integral might be, might recognize as the archaic, magic, mythic, mental, and then integral. Uh, Wilbur went, okay, let's put that into a developmental framework. Gebser's not doing that. So I would say that's the fundamental difference. Um, and there's reasons for and against that move. I, I just think, you know, and the reason why I wrote Seeing Through the World and have been putting forward some of Gebser's work is that um, I think there's so much more we can do with Gebser's approach, particularly as some of the critiques against um, or, or critiques about uh, explicitly developmental perspectives are coming out and there's been some pushback, you know, especially in the, in, in the climate that we're in today with post-colonial thinking and um, that kind of turn, there's more room to work with Gepser's work. And then also for me, uh, maybe even in a kind of modernist sense of experimenting with different narrative and different structure and how things unfold, I think Gebser leaves more room for experimentation. How do we really understand the history of consciousness in a, in a less explicitly linear way? Um, so there's more there's more creative room with Gebser, and I think it's more compatible with the, uh, the postmodern turn. Yeah. What do you personally make of these developmental models? Do you, I mean, certainly you know, you're aware of the critiques, but do you feel like kind of that, that they're useful at least? Do you feel that they add something or do you, uh, yeah. How do you kind of negotiate their potential risks with what they might, uh, provide? Yeah. Good question. I, I kind of, I situate them as, as predominantly helpful modes of, of, of orienting ourselves as moderns. So I, I think they're telling more of the story of being modern and becoming postmodern than they are necessarily really aren't understanding tradition or, or the pre-modern. Um, so, so they're more of a kind of a reflection and a narrative of, of ourselves and our own kind of history and biases, which is fine. And I think it can be very clarifying. Um, I, I think the, the problems sort of, things start to fall apart when those developmental approaches try to understand the pre-modern world and place-based thinking and indigenous thinking, et cetera. Um, the narratives kind of fall apart there. And I, I think that's fine. I think just re recognizing the kind of contours of developmental thinking in the context of being in the secular modern world with the narratives that are implicit in that, that's good and useful even. Um, but I think there's certain limits to it. 
Well, that's interesting because then it sounds like, and maybe this is impossible, but you'd almost need a meta meta theory in the sense of, you know, these meta theories, right. They're trying to sort of look at everything and say, here's how it all hangs together. And, and, and maybe even, and here's this kind of dangerous move, like how they all linearly kind of hang together and develop one from the other. Um, But if you're kind of suggesting that that really only works, you know, at a certain point, maybe historically or, or whatnot, then things before that aren't really amenable to that sort of model. And so the temptation, at least maybe from that model would be, well, how do we come up with a meta theory that will in- incorporate that? And maybe maybe that itself isn't even possible. But um, in that sense, I mean, do you feel like this these attempts to, to increasingly sort of hone and develop these meta theories, meta narratives is sort of, you know, just inherently either f- at the very least fraught and maybe just futile from the get-go? Oh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic with those attempts uh, because I'm also, you know, in this modern context, right? And there is a reason why I found Wilbur deeply appealing for a time in terms of, hey, a grand synthesis of everything. And he used developmentalism to, to, to weave that all together. There's something almost um, uh, intoxicatingly coherent about about the, the the big picture maps, right? That really try to, in a totalizing way, in a grandiose way, include everything. Um, I, and so, and so, I'm, I'm I'm being sympathetic. I'm I'm kind of saying, and this is something that one of one of the things Gebser mentions, um, and that I may have mentioned in my article, meta modern, um, meta comma modern, the the sense that a lot of our articulations of wholeness of the planetary of that which we all participate in, um, they're Janus-faced, right? We are creating these totalizing narratives to attempt to express wholeness. Whereas I think underneath that is this aesthetic sense or a felt sense that there is a whole in which we participate, right? But the way we come to it, maybe more along the lines of like in the context of like Jorge Ferrer's work with participatory spirituality, that it's like the ocean with an endless shore, right? There is a whole, but we're kind of coming to it in an infinite way. And so uh, I, I think that point is important here because w- when we have a singular totalizing narrative, I think we kind of end up oscillating into modernism to try to make the metamodern move, which we, again, we don't know, it's prefigurative. How do we get a sense of the whole? Um, so yeah, I think I think it's more of a felt sense of participating in the whole, and then also um, uh, maybe finding different ways to articulate that that aren't necessarily in a totalizing rational way, um, which which is why I actually was drawn to metamodernism as as a field first, not necessarily through Hansi's work, but through uh, the, the the more cultural studies turn, which is like, the, those guys were looking at that, like, okay, what is what are we playing with here creatively in our culture, descriptively, the this, this sense of in-betweenness? So I'm, I'm interested in continuing to really kind of explore that question, but maybe beyond the scope of just oscillating between modern and postmodern. But metaxi yeah. is like, other tensions too, like modern and non-modern, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, modernists and then, okay, this prefigurative sense of the planetary, um, et cetera. So kind of interested in exploring there. Yeah. So it seems like a lot of these conversations around metamodernism are sort of uh, all kind of finding entries to the conversation in different ways through that kind of meta prefix. Um, and 
some of those you kind of explore in this article, uh, meta modernism. And a lot of it is about talking about this betweenness and this, this state of being in between this. Uh, so speak a little bit to that, because I, I, I think that, um, you know, if you were to try to map out the different ways that this term is being used from a cultural idiom to a developmental, you know, political and psychological model to a kind of lived phenomenological state of betweenness, there's a lot going on there. And certainly temporally, they all kind of relate to this moment. And so there's something about them that's resonating with a lot of people. Um, but, uh, but maybe you can speak to that in-betweenness idea here in the meta-modern sense. Yeah, there's, um, like I wrote about, I think uh, metaxi uh, is, is a good, or, or the meta rather than meta-thinking or, or even meta-modern, but the meta-ness seems to be, as you're saying, the kind of uh, universal uh, concept that we're all kind of relating to, like being between worlds, being between different cultures, the breakdown of, of uh, modernity. And if we take a lot of, you know, what, what's going on with the, with the ecological crisis, um, there's this even existential species-wide sense of betweenness, like how are we going to continue to be uh, on this planet in the same kind of way as a culture, as a civilization. So there's this sense that we are giving up some of the, the, the cultural sense-making and cultural attitudes we've, we've inhabited um, for tens of thousands of years. And now even existentially, you know, are we going to be here in the, in the next century or two is, is, is a question many scholars and scientists are exploring. So truly there is this existential sense of in-between. Um, and I do talk about that in the article in the sense that um, it, it's more of a, um, an applicable point to make this liminality or this ontology of, of between or with, right, seems to be an opening to begin to talk about non-modern, pre-modern, post-modern, post right? That betweenness or interrelationality itself is one of the, um, I think, deciding or decisive ontologies we're, we're playing with here. Um, like Gebser talked about this in terms of a perspectivity or the integral consciousness. He, he has two terms, the integral a perspectival, uh, and I can break that down a little bit, but essentially with, with the prefix alpha privativum for Gebser, it's this, it's this freedom from and freedom for. It's this, again, it's this sort of like slipping between the cracks of defined points, there is this living relationality of things. Or I talked about this in the article too, like uh, Joshua Rothman describing this as this um, hidden continuity behind things. So is that hidden continuity found through relationship or relationality, found through liminality, right? Uh, being between things is really, I think that the, the cultural attitude we're beginning to cultivate, not just in the sense of things are breaking down and then things are emerging, but actually there's something important about that betweenness itself as, as a quality of what's emerging, right? Um, and this is something like, you know, we mentioned McLuhan earlier. I think McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan explores this quite a bit in the application of his thinking with James Joyce, where he's talking about, you know, there's that particular um, uh, section in the Gutenberg galaxy where he's he's talking about uh, him, his work as a sort of applied Joyceanism. Uh, 
and by that he means, you know, he gives this example of Joyce, I think from uh, Finnegan's Wake of uh, uh, Joyce, kind of the character, the protagonist, Finnegan, just sort of putting on and taking off different uh, cultural ecologies or media ecologies from oral to script to electronic. And there's a sense of being in between all of these different cultural ecologies that I think is really what's coming online for us now, or at least the, the, the challenge of that um, and, and the possibility of that kind of openness between pre-modern, modern, or whatever is after, um, that liminality is something that seems to be struggling to be realized right now. And that's sort of where I was trying to get with that article, right? That there's this. So, so one question would be, how do you feel like that kind of, uh, inhabiting that betweenness and sort of being okay with that kind of um, not seeing the the whole picture kind of reality. One is that, I mean, is that something that that uh, that people could cultivate in a way um, that is somehow edifying and in itself uh, like a, a, a space that people could inhabit in a meaningful way, or is it is it the very thing that people often kind of run from and thus seek the total narrative and seek the all grand encompassing story? Um, you know, in the sense of trying to think about emerging spiritualities and things like that, I, I wonder how much sort of people in toto are kind of capable of living in those liminal spaces and living between things and kind of living into that rather than kind of being afraid of that, the sort of perceived uncertainty and, and lack of clarity that comes from it. So that'd be question one. And then two is, isn't kind of what you're describing. I think it sounds to me a lot more like what postmodernism is in its more constructive moments was sort of aiming for, um, and maybe I'm reading that wrong, either from what you're saying or from what the postmodernists, you know, were saying. But um, but I feel like that being able to sort of toggle in and out and the embrace of uncertainty and the uh, kind of eschewing of grand narratives that really is certainly in like Leotard's formulation of postmodernism or postmodernity, that is that is it, right? So how how would you kind of say that what this is 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 as a meta modern thing is is different from that? uh, postmodern ideal. I, you know, part of this, I think is, is the decidedly temporic emphasis on, and this is for, this is some, some of Gepser's work, but it's also in, in Bergson's work and Deleuze, uh, the, the creative becoming aspect of this, right? The latency of the past, and then also the, the latency of the future. And again, I, I there's a lot that postmodernism, I think, gets right, right, in its most constructive, exploratory, open elements. Um, I think the way out is through in that sense of, of really kind of negotiating and shifting and morphing and being comfortable with the unknown and finding another way to get to wholeness uh, without necessarily needing a, a, an oscillation to the modernist grand narrative. I think wholeness emerges in this relationality as a felt sense. Like Bonita Roy, one of uh, uh, my colleagues in the integral world, she talks about this as a as a kind of participatory way of going meta. And I think, you know, at its best, the postmodern anticipates this, right? It understands that things are a flux, 
they're fluidic, they are constructive, but they're also generative, and that we participate in this sense of the whole without ever necessarily needing to capture it in a totalizing way. I think thinkers like, you know, Nora Bateson, um, in, in her work, she describes this as um, uh, sympathy is a different way of kind of relating to systems and categorizations, but also to the aliveness and subjectivity and intersubjectivity of things. And I think this is something that metamodern thinkers try to acknowledge as well, the subjectivity, the interiority of things. So really, at its best, we begin to accommodate that, the, the subjective, the interior, and also the creative and the emergent, right? So I think temporics, subjectivity, um, and, and this sort of creative emergence through this interrelationality of our being is where things get interesting, right? There's a, a kind of acknowledgement that we're, we're all seeing different aspects of the whole, but the whole doesn't need to be expressed in a continuous way. I'll give you an example. Um, there's a great book, more in the literary side of things, by Jane Allison called Meander, Spiral, Explode, where she's exploring actually modernists in the early 20th century um, and, and a few more later thinkers who are playing around with different forms of narrative to gain a sense of the whole without necessarily needing to kind of create that sort of phallic climactic narrative story that, that we, we've gotten since Aristotle. Um, and so she uses these different patterns and metaphors from nature. She says a story could be like a, um, like a cell, like a honeycomb structure or a crystal. Um, it could explode all at once. The sense of the whole surges forth, but we never arrive at it. Maybe it's really the way everything connects and interrelates as, as we make those meta linkings ourselves that the sense of the whole can be arrived at, right, without any kind of direct way. So I think this style of thinking, I mean, this might qualify it as something a little bit different than the postmodern in that we are still acknowledging the sense of the whole and that we participate in it. It's not just deconstruction. It's not just surface play of different forms. There is a, a, an aliveness to things and a depth to things um, and a transcendence even. Um, but but there's, there's an acknowledgement that it can't be captured. So there's different participatory relationship with it. Yeah. So one of the things, so to bring all these different threads together, let's see if I can articulate this. So one of the hardest um, kind of needles to thread in my mind is, let's say on the one hand, you've got these different uh, developmental structures as fraught as the, as the idea may be, but still different, different modes, modalities of, of, of consciousness and, and engaging reality and whatever you want to call that, whether it's stages or epistemas or, you know, cultural codes, what have you. Um, and so there's, there isn't a, a uniformity of an, of let's say an audience um, for, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just say there isn't a uniformity in the, in the population. Okay. Now, um, how, how does, all right. So that's the sort of idea a over here. Idea B is that to bring in back where you're talking about, there's this existential import. There's this existential recognition at the current moment that like, we are sort of heading towards this precipice. There are many different, you know, whether, whether you call it the meta crisis or what have you, there's, there are these many different issues that need resolution that need tending to that, that we need solutions for. And it's created a sense of urgency that kind of pushes us a little bit beyond that kind of postmodern playfulness, you know, we can just kind of play with things when it's like, no, we need to sort some stuff out here. And 
foremost in my mind personally would be the ecological crisis, the environmental crisis. But there certainly, unfortunately, is no shortage of crises at the moment that one could point to. So let's say that's sort of idea B. Um, idea C then is this premise of kind of now starting to bring in um, ideas about, let's call it the metamodern spirituality or the, uh, the this issue of a meaning crisis and a sense-making crisis, which is sort of uh, the background context for our current moment, sort of the, certainly the background context for idea B with the, all these crises going on. Um, and my question then is, uh, how do we, pragmatically speaking, um, sp speak to, speak in narratives that help people make sense of the world and find meaning in the world and thus help tend to some of these sense-making and meaning-making crises that lie behind, you know, these meta-crises. Um, how do we do that uh, in a way that's effective uh, and thus um, sort of speaks to the, the entirety of these different developmental stages or codes or what have you, um, in an effective way so that we're, we're all able to kind of come together and, and do something about this really urgent moment. Um, and maybe to kind of put all that better in a slightly more cohesive way is like, um, so Jamie wheel in his book, you know, recapture the rapture, he talks about the idea of the, the Cinderella story narrative, right? And there's like, there are certain narratives that, which is actually Kurt Vonnegut's idea that there are certain kind of narrative structures that really just, you see them pervasively and they, uh, they, they seem to work. Um, they're they're pretty simple narratives, though. You know, they're not these kinds of crystalline or kind of uh, more complex structures that that kind of postmodern writers or or authors might be interested in exploring. That might be able to more effectively get at this kind of more nuanced phenomenology that you're talking about. Uh, they're a bit more of a blunt instrument, right? But they work, and that's sort of the idea. So I guess my question all hinges around if if and this is my hypothesis, is that we do need somehow to speak to the meaning and the sense-making crises with new narratives that can speak to the totality of people at their various different stages or in different cultural codes. The challenge to me seems like there needs to be something that's uh, that eschews a certain amount of nuance, right? That it's, it's a bit, it just kind of it can, it can work for billions of people because that's kind of something that we need. So that's sort of the challenge, right? Is how do you get something that's sort of this blunt instrument that works when at the same time, the complexity and the reality of our situation is sort of demanding this kind of hyper nuanced and really kind of, you know, interesting in-betweenness that you're talking about, which is like, I'm not sure if that comes naturally to everyone or if enough people could see that and live into it or if they see it and they want to turn rapidly away from it. So I don't know, maybe I'm circumambulating around my question and you can answer it how you will. But what do we do about these disconnects between the, the, the need to kind of embrace the complexity of the moment and be able to find uh, a, a home in the in-between while at the same time, you know, actually pragmatically tending to our specific ex existential crises and meaning-making and sense-making crises that might demand something a little bit simpler uh, for everyone, if that makes yeah. sense. Wow. <laughs> How do we solve the the meaning crisis and, and the meta crisis? <laughs> yeah, um, that's the question. That's and all. you have yeah. 30 seconds. <laughs>
Um, so I, I think part of this is, is the next book I'm working on, uh, after the one I'm working on now, <laughs> I've got two lined up, um, nice. fragments of an integral futurism. And then the next one will be on planetary mythology. So it's kind of looking at that. It's kind of looking at that, not just the super interesting, um, modernist literary works that are playing with form and narrative structure, but, but, but the, the, the larger mythologies or mythologies that might apply to a larger swath of people. Right. Um, and part of that I think is, uh, recognizing that it's already working on us in the sense that a lot of the narratives that I think are cropping up in the contemporary world are already playing with these themes of, of, um, unleashing the intensity of the non-human world. I, I bring up Akira in my book, the 1988 or 1986 um, manga and, and film uh, as a great example of this sort of planetary mythology, right? The unleashing of these forces, the scientific forces of intensity with the analog of the atom bomb or the imagery of the atom bomb. Of course, it's a psychic bomb in the film and how, how the human being wrestles with that and actually supersedes their own ego to find a way to create with the cosmos. So it's sort of a cosmic planetary theme, but nevertheless, and it's taking place in the context of, you know, um, I think a lot of cyberpunk uh, uses this image of the, uh, the city that's been ramped up to the mega city, right? So there's this image of modernity that's hyper-realized, right? It's exaggerated in this sort of narrative tale. And there's all the characters are always negotiating with hyper modernity, as it were. Um, I think these are these are narratives that are describing this this interim process that we're in. Um, maybe ones that explore more of our, uh, let's say, you know, part of the themes I'm looking at in terms of a perspectivity and integrality don't have to do necessarily with like complex narrative forms, but um, have to do with like, well, how, what is the, what is the planetary self? Okay. Well, um, in this, in the in biology and the, in the sciences, we're learning that the self is actually much more of a collective thing with the microbiome. So agency is getting all weirdly distributed. Well, science fiction is having a ton of fun with this, just in terms of like, I'm thinking of like Jeff Vandermeer's fun ecological books and novels that have come out recently, um, to the felt sense that the, the self is this distributed whole, right? There's a lot of popular narratives and books that are exploring this from an ecological sense. So I think a lot of ecological uh, narratives in literature are playing with this. And in another sense, though, like part of the meaning crisis, when we talk about, um, you know, in, in Gepser's language, the, the the severing of the modern from uh, the 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 mythical symbolic world, right? The reality of the psyche Jung talks about, uh, and the magical animistic world, the vitalistic world, right? Um, the severing from those realities and our capacity to inhabit those realities or our lack of is part and parcel to do with this meaning crisis, right? The, the over direction towards abstraction, um, conceptualization and sense directed thinking, uh, when overemphasized, we lose contact with different domains of being in the world, which are still a part of us, but they inhabit us and we inhabit them in a very unhealthy way. Uh, Jung talked about this, of course, too, with, you know, uh, the 20th century and mass movements and Gebser did as well. So I think part of this in a very immediate way is like, well, how do we get back as, to, as Latour talks about down to earth? How do we become terrestrials? How do we get back in the dirt? Um, one of the things Jason Snyder, one of the folks in the metamodern slash homestead 
aspect of our community talks about joked about this on Twitter saying like, what are you talking about meaning crisis go grow things in the dirt and then talk about the meaning crisis. So I think part of this is really resituating ourselves finding ways to ground ourselves um, back in place based relationships. And it's difficult to do. We don't live in a civilization that's oriented towards that at all. But I think this is part of what we're being forced to relearn. Yeah. And uh, one of the tensions here is that another oscillation between being modern and then coming back down to earth in terms of, okay, well, how do we relocalize and how do we retrieve place-based thinking uh, like Tyson Yonka Porta talks about with indigenous complexity. Um, those are the kind of tensions I think it, really need to be explored in order to resolve this meaning crisis. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. So then it almost sounds like what you're saying, or maybe, maybe this isn't what you're saying, but is this what you're saying? Uh, that this sort of in-betweenness, if we could cultivate more of that, that it's not some kind of hyper intellectual, super nuanced view of the, you know, the complexity of living amongst hyper objects or whatever. It's more like, no, we just need to get more in the dirt and be more less uh, kind of keen to try to, you know, totalize a narrative around everything and get our heads around everything and abstract um, uh, to the point of, you know, uh, totality. Um, is there is there an overlap between what you're what you're talking about in terms of cultivating this this sort of um, in betweenness and you know uh, this sort of rewilding uh, getting you know back back to the earth getting back in touch with with reality sort of thing um, I, because you could almost make the point that like human beings have always lived in in the betweenness of things that's just been the nature and that you could almost see kind of modern rationalization and abstract thought is this sort of almost pathological detour away from that of trying to somehow come at, at things with the whole um, and, and that going terribly wrong. Um, I don't know. Is there something in my, am I kind of getting on? Yeah. Some, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's, there's something interesting in, in, in that, in that distantiation uh, you know, Charles Taylor talks about as the buffering of the self Right. Um, Gepser talks about is the instantiation of ego and again, abstract sense directed thinking. Um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate it as a mistake or a wrong turn necessarily, but that, you know, I think this, this works as a principle that we see in living systems and, and, and living organisms, right? That complexity arises with difference, right? So the stretching and the folding that we see in, let's say, neuroplasticity or the plasticity of like embryonic morphogenesis. One of my colleagues, Barbara Carlson talks about this, the stretching and the folding, almost like dough, right? There's a separate self sense that we've, but we've developed and now that's folding back into the whole as a kind of addition to complexity, right? So I would say that we're, we're folding abstraction and civilization into, into the non-human again, right? If we were to see this, as Owen Barfield might see it as a kind of process, a U-turn um, or U-curve, right? Of, um, a, we called it original participation and final participation. Um, there's this distantiation and then a refolding into the sense of the whole. That that's, that's how I would kind of say like, that's a narrative to play with. That's a mythology to explore. And we could certainly work with that. And when there's Im implicit elements of that, and I think in our myth-making already, right? Returning home, that kind of thing. Um, you know, in Ursula K. Le Guin's book that I'm reading with my uh, mutations uh, patrons, um, she there's a book called Always Coming Home, and there's a sense of this ever-presentness 
of the whole that we participate in. So I would say, yeah. And then you mentioned rewilding. I, you know, I've very, I've been very interested in like Daniel Christian Wall's work and again, Nora Bateson and a lot of the regenerative community work that's looking at bioregionalism, place-based thinking, all the things that I've mentioned. And I think, yeah, I mean, um, rewilding is, uh, you know, a, a kind of refuturing, right? And again, it's not a re retrograde. I think it's, well, how do we fold in all of these interesting achievements of separate self-sense technology, modernity, abstraction, sense-directed thinking, into the larger complexity of what we've always been, right? Just in terms of the human being is also more than that and has been more than that and continues to be in different cultures, right? Especially, you know, in indigenous communities that are still present. So how do we reintegrate with the whole? I think part of the the, the, the integral turn in Gepser's uh, language is this sort of finding a way to move back into the concrete, the concretize. This is all very interesting because because that, that does help me a lot in terms of um, the, the danger I see with these developmental uh, thoughts is, and it's not necessarily limited to uh, the historical uh, ways that they've been fraught in terms of, you know, uh, categorizing people and then ranking them and all that sort of stuff. Those are certainly concerns in itself, but even just implicit in the thought structure of it is that if there's a linear progression, then like, um, you know, it, there's, there's this way of, of things becoming sort of uh, so, so removed that people are increasingly not in the same world, right? Because they're, they're inhabiting a different cultural code or stage or something that it's like, how do we all find any kind of a sense of the whole? And I think that all of these things are in some ways kind of they all revolve around the idea of finding the sense of the whole. How is the best way to find a sense of the whole? Um, interestingly, trying to come up with a meta theory, you can say, ah, there's the whole. But then, you know, simultaneously, you could almost say allowing yourself to just say, no, the whole is is greater than all of this. And there's a, a level in which the whole still, you know, moves beyond what we have sort of mapped as the whole and to live into that sense of the whole. So there are different ways of trying to be holistic that um, in some ways are sort of uh, at odds with each other. But to finish that thought about the the idea of these developmental concerns would be, um, I, I find it concerning of like, if 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 the whole winds up being, you know, sort of populated by people at, at so many different stages or different uh, cultural codes, then how do we find that sense of a whole uh, culturally, societally? And so much of that fragmentation, I think, lies behind the meaning crisis and the sense-making crisis. People have different ways of thinking and, and different sense-making capacities that are kind of, uh, you know, at odds with each other, or um, there's this clash of, of, of the fragmentation, uh, you know, the different fragmented units that aren't sort of working collectively. Um, and so what, what it seems like you're saying is that this, um, this, this sensibility that's developing of sort of, um, of fostering or, or cultivating this in-betweenness is in many ways, not uh, some kind of, um, you know, highly abstract philosophy that needs to be kind of, uh, you know, that we need to coin 20 neologisms just to explain, but it's like, this is more about how do we regain in some ways, uh, this thing that has always been there, but maybe we've, we've come away from, we've become too abstract ironically, and we need to find our way back to a more grounded, 
you know, rooted sense of these things. And that to me seems hopeful because then it's like, um, you don't need all the abstraction necessarily. In fact, the abstraction becomes just a tool for highly abstract people to find their way back to some dirt, you know, whereas like exactly. if you were in the dirt the whole time, these things, you know, weren't a problem for you. Um, I don't know. It, d- does that, does that resonate with you about, about this or? Definitely. I, you know, yeah, I think you got it. I mean, the sense that like wholeness as a participatory theme here uh, doesn't need to be expressed through high abstract art or high abstract metacognitive thinking. Um, it could be relayed just as a sort of structure of feeling, right? And I think it is being relayed as a structure of feeling very negatively at the moment. And I, I explore this in that essay, um, uh, Becoming the Planetary, the sense that that this structure of feeling of the planetary is is manifesting as this anxiety over the meta crisis and the planetary crisis and the ecological crisis, the compounding crises, there is a felt sense of the whole, but it's like the whole is falling apart or everything is coming undone or the whole way of doing and thinking and being and relating to the world our civilization has been operating under no longer works, right? So it's sort of showing up as a sort of negative structure of feeling at the moment, but I don't think there's any reason it can't show up in a more constructive way as an aesthetic felt sense, a structure of feeling, um, something that um, that could be popularized and mythologized as a creative work of art that just communicates that because people just grok it, right? And this is something McLuhan talked about too, um, even though ironically, like many thinkers like Gebser, et cetera, who are communicating like something that's almost intuitive, he was very difficult to understand just in terms of like really parsing what does McLuhan mean? He was infamous for that. Um, I, I love the way he writes. I find it to be very uh, psychoactive myself, like, like Gepser. Um, but, but he, he kind of mentions this, like the meta modern thinkers do in terms of um, looking to particularly the artist or the poet or the, 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 the creative type who's sensitive in a, in an, non-rational way to the transformations of the present in our in our structure of feeling that the artist is attempting to work through or work out or realize right and i think that's always a condition of of our culture that we should always look not only to the artist but also by extension any other discipline but usually the artist gives us that that felt sense that is much more democratized so i would say yeah it, it even begins i would even say and this is what i mentioned in the article too that the felt sense of the whole um, begins as a structure of feeling. It doesn't begin necessarily as an intellectual endeavor, maybe for some who are who need that abstract path, as you mentioned. But I don't even say like, despite my criticisms of Wilbur, um, I, I think he's he's tapped into that sense of the whole. He really wants to find a way to articulate it. He's doing it in a very conceptual way. But I would say even intellectuals are, are motivated by that structure of feeling or that attitude and are attempting through various forms of success or unsuccess to express it. Um, and that and that leaves a kind of interesting, uh, interesting place to or, or ground to explore here, because uh, when it comes to something like, let's say we mentioned earlier, like transdisciplinarity, um, I look at like Neri Oxman's work at MIT, uh, and it seems to be that the designers in the in the, in the kind of transdisciplinary spaces that, or let's say, the Bauhaus in like 1919, um, 
uh, they are able to find the sense of the whole and, and its interrelationality with everything um, in in the living relationships between di different disciplines and personalities. Like um, uh, Walter Gropius designed uh, the Bauhaus, the second building, to be uh, basically a meeting place where everybody was forced from different departments to rub shoulders against one another and come up with ideas and take different classes and fields that they weren't interested in. Um, with Neri Oxman and MIT, it's that same kind of idea that transdisciplinarity is the thing between all of these different disciplines. And so we have to have a kind of radical transparency in which art is, is creating a kind of creative synergy with uh, engineering, which is creating a synergy with architecture, which is creating a synergy with biology. And so she comes up with interesting designs like using um, insect exoskeleton uh, cell structures to develop a, a replacement for plastic or something along those lines. But it's that sort of, um, Maria Popova calls it combinatorial creativity, I think is very interesting. So, and again, this is like, sorry, go on. This is, we don't need to necessarily get this as a, as a concept. It's like, yeah, I get what you mean, this sort of openness of things and the personal and the scientific, and there's a felt sense of this thing that's going on. I think really leaning into that um, can help cohere what the emergent mentality actually is yeah but so then my question is is there something about our current um living spaces and the default um you know ways that people are living now which are the consequence of you know modern urban planning and all that sort of thing um it seems to me i'll put it that way because it's more than just a rhetorical question my 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 I would posit that um, it's a lot easier to become concretized. It's a lot easier to to find a sense of wholeness in place and and intuit that and care for it and put your feet in the dirt when you're in a you know idyllic rural you know organic farming you know retreat center or or commune or something like that right but if you were one of the billions of people of the majority of people on the planet who have found their way into a city um that seems to be a lot harder to me and it seems like these cities these kinds of cyberpunk hyper modern uh you know realities that are increasingly becoming more and more real that those are that, that they inhibit precisely in some ways what we're what we're talking about this kind of sense um so one would you agree with that uh and two like what do what do you do about that because it don't because it, it <laughs> yeah. requires right it requires a completely a complete reimagination of human habitation and lived spaces and and things like that and and then then you start getting you know into exploring issues about um how you know, what is, what is the optimal uh, kind of context for human beings to live in? And is there something about how people are living now that is sort of kind of, it's built in that they're being cut off from these other ways of living, ways of knowing um, that are maybe almost, you could say, the, the, the solutions to the meaning crisis aren't necessarily finding an abstract philosophy that works, but it's just, you know, finding a lived modality that works. And it's just the, the very fact that we live in ways that are not working for us that we need to change. Um, I don't know. Speak to that. I mean, I think you, you didn't entirely answer it, but, but 
that last statement you made about it, it, it's our way of living and overemphasizing a particular uh, dissociated cultural practice economically, socially, architecturally, just in terms of living in cities, et cetera. Sure, I would say like those things do contribute to that um, distantiation. Um, and like any of this, like again, it's, it's, it's Jana's face in that sense of, um, you know, sure, sure, all of that is true. And on the other hand, everybody's using electronic culture now as our predominant mode of communication. And so the, 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 the kind of temporal sense that we all have is a little bit different than let's say, you know, 50, 60 or 70 years ago, right? I think um, newer generations are having a sense of which like, let's say, I'll give you this example, my, my, uh, my friends, a uh, kid, I mean, he's a teenager now, um, and his friends, that the way they watch movies is they they don't watch them. They just scrub through them for their favorite scenes. So it's almost like a hyper text where it's just like, oh, yeah, I read the wiki. I know all the different stories. Uh, and we're going to just like go watch this one fragment of it. But we have a sense of like the whole thing and we don't need to watch it linearly anymore. Like that's interesting. And I, I know that comes out of the technological. So that's fascinating. Um, so I guess the answer for me is like, um, yes, insofar as these these spaces have contributed to our remoteness, but also they seem to be imploring us to explore a new relationship with time and space as well. Um, it's not an answer exactly. It's sort of prefigurative in that sense, but they seem to be a mix, you know, and I well, mean more of the electronic and technological. But Yeah, I mean, it, it gives me pause because I, a lot of where I come at these things is like if we could get our our thoughts in the right place we'd be much better off. But once we start talking about, you know, these sort of, you know, finding lived modalities that themselves kind of resolve the meaning and sense-making crises, it's, it almost becomes uh, less about belief or thought or spirituality or, you know, those sorts of more abstract ideas. And I'm starting to kind of doubt myself of, oh, maybe a lot of the way I'm coming at this is, is very much in this sort of modern, you know, uh, headspace of like, well, if we can, you know, of course, you know, a lot of this goes back to Luther and Protestantism that like, you know, belief is everything. Um, but uh, I, I've, I've, I've always had certain issues with this kind of systems only approach to the try the attempts to resolve issues and i think it's a very kind of postmodern thing of recognizing that systems are at work that 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 inhibit and that constrain people in very meaningful ways and that we need to do something about that but at the same time you know it's like people talking about trying to change systems and structures and then there's this this sort of almost it's a breakdown. It's almost like it's, you know, you're trying to fix a hyper object or something. And of course that is in many ways, what the, uh, our situation is demands of us. But for me, I feel like, well, systems are also, um, made up of individuals that might have emergent properties that are coming out of the individuals as a substrate, but still they're individuals there. And if we can reach people at the level of individuals, then maybe we can change the systems. And uh, so I've tended to kind of privilege that approach, which then says, all right, well, how do we go about trying to change people's perspectives of things? And then, of course, it's like, well, how do we reinfuse a sense of meaning and a sense of awe and wonder and spirituality and that sort of thing? But at the same time, there is this other component where it's like, how much of that will even be effective if 
you live in a concrete jungle and you're not able, you can't even, you don't even know what dirt is in some profound way to stick your feet into and plant something and have a space that, that, um, you know, is, is, is a, is sacred in that sense that, um, that I would, I would think of the sacred. So anyway, there, there are different ways into trying to get at these issues. And, um, I don't really know what to make of that. I don't know if there's a, if one, you know, has a, if there's a benefit of one approach versus, versus the other, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I would go to McLuhan for this too, in the, in the media ecological sense that, you know, our, our individual agency and subjectivity play are both shaped by the environment and also shape the environment. So it's, it's, it's always this collective um, Mobius strip, this sort of endless loop of the individual and the collective and the environment they're producing. But I think if we're more sensitive to the environments we're producing and creating, that is both a subjective answer, is what you're saying, like, you know, work on the individual, help them change or, or, or discover a new attitude. Um, and then in, in turn, allow the individuals to shape the world differently, shape their environments differently. What like art does, you know, it, it gives us a new perceptive sense, a new relationship, a new, a new, uh, you know, as, as Latour says, a, 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 the new subject of, of the Anthropocene, you know, so, so what instills a new subjectivity or catalyzes it, and then in turn helps us create a new inter-objective subject, you know what I mean? Like just in terms yeah. of the systems and the whole. So seeing them as a continuous process, I think is, is constructive and helpful here. But I think part of this is like, just before we jump into anything else, like the, the sense of um, what we're going through in the climate crisis and ecological crisis, I think is, is necessitating a turn back towards, as the Torah says, the terrestrial, or as Gebser says, the, the a perspective or the concrete concretized in that we saw this in 2020, you know, um, uh, extremely linear resource supply chains uh, buckling under, under this crisis. Um, an, an economic system that is deeply extractive and one-sided in terms of, you know, uh, mono-capitalism, et cetera. So we, we're recognizing the sense of the whole in which it needs to change. And then also um, part of this will be a systemic response and part of it will be an intersubjective response, but it's, it's a whole attitude that seems to affect both. And unfortunately, like you're saying, um, it's, it's deeply prefigurative at this point. We're only just getting to the point where existentially we've begun to think about those nice things like living regeneratively and living on homesteads, um, localization of resources and bioregional regeneration. All of those things are moving towards the center in terms of existential concern. So I think that that, you know, for better or worse, that increased intensity of pressure to recognize and realize new modes of being and living and economics, et cetera, all go along with this. A perspective will turn um but it's it's kind of difficult to hold the whole thing you know what yeah. i mean yeah i mean inherently it seems like you need you need people working at every level and at every orientation of this if we're going to succeed because you can have these people going at the system whatever that means and you know but you can then but you also then need the people who are going at sort of the hearts and minds angle because you can create a system but if if no one wants to live into it then 
what is metamodern spirituality as you would think of it and and uh what does that look like and what is it what are its consequences how does it how does it work yeah good question uh again difficult to answer and i know on the on the facebook group um i gave it a shot and a lot of other very interesting and brilliant folks um were making some great attempts and um you know it's, what's funny is like i i don't know if i'm any closer after reading everyone's reflections to, to getting a sense of it. But for me, uh, it's, it's this, this deep sense, like, like I said, in my article, like I, I prefer meta to, to meta modern, um, in that, in that, I think we are, we are learning to become more than modern. So modern, postmodern, meta modern, there's still an orbit around modern. And yeah. I think that the deeper restructuration is, is, maybe even closer to what Latour talks about with non-moderns. I don't know if he even uses that term anymore, but um, I always found it to be kind of insightful. And I think part of this is becoming non-modern again. And part of that regenerative turn is, is can we, in an unironic sense, in a concretized sense, um, regenerate the animistic sense of, of being in the world, right? Um, magical animism, mythical symbol, right? Psychic, the reality of the psyche Jung talks about. And then also, you know, the, the, the kind of transcendental abstract oriented sub, sublimity of, of, of the mental and the modern world, where all of those things, the sense of the whole in the, in the individual and in the human being that's able to be present to the wholeness of ourselves, right? Um, for me, I, I go to Gepser's work when he talks about rather than um, his language of this for this is, is the spiritual. And he's very abstruse about what that actually means. He, he says, also calls it the itself in a sort of Meister Eckhartian way. Um, he never really gets at it in a direct way. Um, but he says with the spiritual and not spirits as in the magical animism and not spirit as in the transcendental mental modern uh, but the spiritual, the sense of the whole, right? Can we be present to it? And I think one of the orientations he gives, which I've, I've really deeply taken to heart is a sense of moving from religio, the, the, the observance of the mysteries to religion, which is more of the, the mental orientation to tie back to the mystery into the ineffable to bind back to, as he says, preligio or um, an obligation to the present to become present and that in the present, the spiritual is actually concretized and open, right? That there is no, or it's possible for us to have the whole history of consciousness revivified and transparent in the present. And also what we are becoming to be somehow informing us in a sense, the future you know, the unborn and the dead in the present. To me, that, that speaks to a metamodern spirituality in that sense of openness, transparency, as Gebser says, diaphaneity, right? So this, this sense of transparency, this felt sense is difficult to really describe. Um, translucent, present, open. Uh, to me, that speaks to this because it seems to be the attitude that's... Um, uh, sufficient enough to bring in the wealth of all we have been 
and all we've been through modernity and all we are becoming right to be deeply present in, in the yeah. spiritual present yeah. so that's my that's my rough attempt at, yeah. attempt to articulate well so that it. i mean that was i so i agree and i i think that um um you know one of the things that i've been appreciating about where conversations around meta modernity has gone is is you know the meta modernism that was introduced that i think it sounds like you and i both kind of initially were aware of um, sort of focused just purely on sort of the postmodern and the modern. That was sort of this thing. And there was this oscillation back and forth between these things. And um, with more thinking about these ideas and taking these ideas and this term in a slightly different direction, then you get someone like uh, Lena Anderson who talks about, well, it's not just the modern and the postmodern, it's modern or it's postmodern, modern, you know, kind of classical and indigenous. Um, and all of that is sort of, at play. Um, and so I think those things are also really important because what you're talking, a lot of what you're talking about to me, uh, it sounds like it's uh, certainly resonating a lot in that sort of uh, indigenous and pre-modern mode uh, where, you know, kind of pre-hyper abstracting, pre-hyper rational and all that where presence and um, uh, lived experience and and those sorts of things were much more salient to I think people than once you start getting into modernity people start living more and more in their heads and more and more in abstraction uh, more and more in ideas and you get you know a lot of hamlets around there just kind of you know also just kind of not doing anything and and paralysis analysis and all that stuff um and so that that kind of expansion of of the idea of what a meta modernity might be is sort of somehow incorporating working between all of these things um and and the way that you talk about it it's sort of like they're all accessible in the present they're all you know if we can become more present then they're all sort of transparent to us in this in this moment um which brings i think a whole kind of phenomenological way of, of going about this. Um, and so that's all by way of just sort of framing, I think, how I'm interpreting a lot of how all this sort of uh, coheres and, and comes together. One of my thoughts um, or questions would be, um, there's a danger in the present. And Kierkegaard talks about this idea of the the immediate and the reflective, which are ideas he picks up from Hegel, but kind of really runs with. And, and so, you know, reflection is thinking, it's this abstraction, and it's this, you know, cognition about things, it's, it's, it's what the Hamlets do. But the immediacy of life, I think, is very much what you're talking about in terms of this presence, um, and being present. Uh, and, but both of them, they have their pros and their cons, because, um, you know, yes, with reflection, you're not living in the present. You're 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 reflecting upon it. You're it's it's constantly you know living in the, you know by by looking at the rearview mirror. But with immediacy, the the downfall is that you're not able to be reflective about it. And there's a lot that can go wrong when we're not being reflective, um, because I mean, certainly you know with your background in psychology and, and that sort of thing and psycho and sociology, there's so much that comes out of uh, human beings that's sort of hardwired into us that might not necessarily best be just sort of lived into in the present, right? So there's some, there's, there's some thing that we gain by, you know, by stepping out of the present, as it were, and becoming reflective and thinking about, well, do I really want to say that? Or do I really want to do that? 
And so I guess my question would be, especially thinking about these things in sort of a culture code or a stage mentality would be, you know, if I think we prioritize or, or privilege presence above everything, isn't there the danger that uh, there is a sort of regressive move that we kind of, we lose a lot of rationality or we lose a lot of reflection and in the process might kind of just unreflectively be allowing ourselves to live out our neuroses, our repressions, our, you know, all, all the kind of psychological stuff that's floating around back here that, that we're not even aware of until we're reflective about it. So I don't know, what would you say to that? How, how do we, how do we live in the present without letting the present kind of, uh, you know, take over in a negative way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a third distinction here to make, and that is um, the, the kind of present you're describing you mentioned immediatism, right? Um, I, I think we might distinguish that less as a as the present skepticists articulating, and more as the kind of nowness, right? A kind of like just what's going on in the moment, um, gut intuitive, emotional psychistic, participatory imagistic. You know, those things kind of you participate in them. You don't necessarily need to abstract and think about, right? So I would say that's not the present Gebser's talking as an undivided present has to make room for thinking in abstraction. So I would I would make a subtle distinction that it's not a mere now and what's going on in the now as a kind of a gut reaction, but a, a way of becoming sufficiently present even to thinking and the process of thinking itself, right? Of being aware of thinking and the attitude of how we how we dissociate, how we become abstract is in this kind of present. So Gebser is actually articulating a kind of, he says, you know, the, the, the thinking, the reflective thing you're describing uh, for Gebser is this, um, this sense-directed thinking. But the present he's articulating, he says, is a senseful awareness. So what, what mode of being present enables us to be deeply cohered about the immediatism of the magical animistic, uh, the mythical imagistic, and the mental abstractive reflective. He's, he's talking about it like a kind of a deeper sort of presence that's open to those things. And it's really difficult to inhabit that because very often we're just moving all over the place in these different modes of sense-making that just make, that co-constitute the human. So he's really suggesting that there's a kind of intensity of presence that hasn't really been, um, uh, brought to the forefront, you know, just as thinking and reflection has been an innovation for human consciousness in terms of mental abstraction and the alphabet. He's saying yeah. there's, there's another innovation, a, a, a leaning into presence, which we haven't really been able to achieve. Um, so there's, I guess there's it's a presence like, in the future that we've got to get to. <laughs> there we go. Um, but he's saying like it, the, the present is open enough to not just be the immediate, not just the mere here and now. Uh, but that's a sort of a deepening into the present, which is really difficult. Um, but the other end of that is, is there's a kind of oscillation here. And he, he, he doesn't give any practices. Um, that's something I've been developing with my students is like, how do we actually explore this in like our daily life, right? Um, because you're right, like there's an immediatism that we can get into. There's a reflective, abstractive capacity. And like we can, as, as individuals, as subject, uh, you know, with our subjectivity, be able to explore abstraction and immediatism and gut and dreaming and, and move back and forth between these different forms of sense-making and being in the world. What's emerging in that betweenness? And that's the kind of presence Skepsis is 
imploring us to explore here with his senseful awareness. Does that make yeah. sense? Um, it's becoming more sensible. Uh, you know, I'm it, again. It's 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 the strange uh, tension between what can be abstracted and what can be felt or lived, and um, for so much of this, like again, my concern is always like, are we are we sort of seeking something that is so nuanced or refined or abstract that you can't even really do it, or at least most people can't, or is it so, or um, is it just it's so fundamental and almost you know kind of primally there, but we're so far away from it now that it takes a whole lot of abstract and strange language just to get us back there. Um, and uh, I don't know. I don't. I mean, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure what it is, but um, but I feel like in in because of the urgency that existential urgency that you referred to um this is so much always the tension with me is it's like whatever whatever a spirituality that is emerging within metamodernity is going to be um how can it avoid being this sort of totally rarefied you know hyper nuanced thing that just is like a few people are doing this thing um because that's not going to help you know, it might, I mean, if five people have the answer to saving the world, you know, it's like, okay, well, that, that might not really be useful. Um, at the same time, there's always that flattening that goes on and that, that diffusion of the, the, the potency of an idea as it becomes more uh, spread across a demographic or a society where, um, you know, it might be more accessible, but in the process, you've lost, you've lost something intrinsic to what made it valuable. And that's always, for me, the tension in trying to explore these ideas. Um, and so I'm really intrigued by how, however it's possible to cultivate or explore, develop a metamodern spiritual framework that is sort of broadly accessible um, and thus, you know, useful, thus, uh, thus effective, pragmatic, uh, and really does change and, and sort of pivot us away from the brink um if it can do that but it also needs to be able to really be at the cutting edge and the forefront of human development you know in some ways or and so trying to balance those two just seems like uh, a very difficult prospect and um you know so anyway so much of this stuff is sort of in my mind always kind of floating and 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 coming back and in between all these different things and one second you're, you know you're at the cutting edge rarefied zone and then all of a sudden you're back and like no this is just you know putting your feet in the dirt you know and and uh, i'm sure there's elements of all of it but uh yeah that's always the challenge for me um yeah yeah i think part of that is um you know that the the emphasis in in Gepser's work particularly is is on temporix so one of the ways he kind of gets you into these different structures is is a reorientation to time, right? So, um, and he, he says, you know, everybody participates in all of the different structures day to day in terms of like the rhythmicity of your heartbeat and your breathing, right? The the kind of polarity of the traditional cultures, the rhythmicity of in breath out breath of the world. Just you do that day to day, right? The rhythmicity of time, sort of the lunar time, et cetera, those kinds of time. We 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 experience those day to day. We also experience the mental, right? In terms of directed, willful, conceptual 
what's my agenda? What's on the planner today? What do I want to do next week? You know, there's that sense, which we're always inhabiting very much so over like in a, in a, in a sense that's over exaggerated, our sense of mental time, we're very hyper productive in our culture. So we have this felt sense of time as this sort of hustle, right? And in part of the, the crisis last year has been this melt. There was a fantastic Guardian article saying um, time doesn't exist anymore. Time is more of a time soup. And it was, it was folks who were working from home, just blurring their, their schedules, right? The weekends and weekdays were kind of melting down. So it's a very felt sense, a structure of feeling that our sense of time is breaking down. So like, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of oscillate between this is something that we all experience in the day to day. And then this is also something that, um, as you say, kind of cutting edge, like, okay, well, how do we inhabit multiple temporicities and live from the future and also get our feet down on the ground and our, and our, and our consciousness present? Um, it seems to both be very complex to talk about and also immediate and, and yeah. underneath our skin. So what are some practices? I mean, you talked about having students and you're exploring these things in a really pragmatic way. What are some things that you're doing uh, that are practice oriented, but also what are you, what are you working towards? I mean, what, what, what is it, what is it that all this is leading to in terms of trying to implement it in ways that will have a kind of uh, pragmatic effect on the world and, and change the world? Oh, that's a big, do I want to change the world? I, um, so in terms of the practices first, uh, we've been experimenting a lot of us with with gardening, including some urban gardening, like literally growing things in, in our on our like little porches, et cetera. Um, and part of that is reconnecting with a different form of time, just the temporics of, of the plant world of growing tomatoes. For example, one of my students is growing tomatoes. Um, another has a garden. So um, as, as um, uh, what's his name, Derek Jarman wrote in a book called Modern Nature, um, experimenting with a, t a form of time, becoming present with a form of time that does not divide the day. And just kind of keeping a journal of these different fluidic experiences of how we engage with time and temporics in day-to-day -day life. And it's really interesting to see what happens for the students when they actually bring attention to how they flow in and out of different experiences of time and how they get back into the hustle culture and step out of it. Um, and it's that kind of multiplicity and fluidity that I think is is um is useful uh, other folks are, are kind of more taking the um the dream work so like really leaning into as Hillman says stick to the image um the the language of the dream of the dreaming and the unconscious self and really allowing that to speak more to them in in daily life um it's funny there's no core practice that is gibsarian or integral but it seems to be um, practices that allow us to oscillate between different forms of time, like gardening, like dream work, um, active imagination practices, and then ones that also intentionally create the kind of mental, productive, directive-oriented uh, um, modes of inhabiting time as well. So it's really picking up and shifting different temporal modalities it seems to be the predominant practice that's sort of coming online um, really generatively. Like I had a, I had a class um, last year where um, it, it was really kind of an experiment, a laboratory, like let's develop practices and explore what this can actually look like in day-to-day -day life. And so a lot of them are looking like this. Um, predominantly gardening has been our metaphor for just about everything recently. That's, that's so interesting. Do you, are these practices, do you think, are they things that sort of uh, disrupt 
you know, because like let's say the default right is this is time is this divi- you know division of moments and it's very linear and it's very abstract, it's very modern. Um, and by trying to oscillate between these different you know temporic modalities, is the process of doing that something that sort of is is it is it kind of just for, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question. Is it something that uh, sort of allows us a, a breather from that uh, modern default as a kind of, you know, all right, I'm kind of, I'm jumping out of the, the you know, the, the mosh pit for a second, catch my breath, and now I'm jumping back in? Or is there a way in which developing these practices is actually somehow kind of, you know, aimed at changing the very rules of what the default is um you know part of it is like do we are we aiming for just a a harmonization of different modalities or are we aiming for some development of our current modality into something into a new default if that makes sense um so does that make sense and uh yes yes no definitely aiming or as, as much as we can, uh, instilling a new sense of, of relationality with the world and a new sense of time. We want a more pluriform, plasticistic, creative, present-oriented relationship with being, doing, and living. And so, yeah, I, it, the, the idea is to help instill that more. And, and almost kind of, it, it's difficult because you, you hyper- recognize how our sense of time in our culture is so not that so they're actually what i've noticed in the students is this sense of um uh tension with the pace of the world right with the uh oh this is really like a false sense of time that we've all been inhabiting uh when you step out of it so there's a kind of and i think this is a good tension it's a good tension in the sense that um it's not a kind of, okay, I'm stuck in the rut and I wish there was something else. It's I've got a taste of something else. And the generative tension is like rubbing against this overemphasis on directive time and abstraction, et cetera. And I think part of the change as you were mentioning earlier, like really reaching individuals is, is cultivating this new attitude of becoming present, um, having a different relationship with time. And that comes through an individual, right? It comes through their own subjectivity and the community and the culture they're building. And obviously like, it's difficult to think, okay, the, the, the little group of us doing these practices and exploring this together are gonna change the world. But the idea is like, well, at least there are ways to live the new. There are ways to live in the present that's different. Um, and maybe the intensity in which we can, as Gebser says, the intensity in which we can live the new is of decisive importance. So I take that as, I mean, a humble approach. I mean, there's, I don't know how we can really change the world, but I do know there's deep importance in intensively living the new or intensively living a new relationship with time and the present. Um, whether that produces a different culture uh, or a different system, I think this is a bigger question that goes beyond individual volition. Um, I will say that, as we were mentioning with the meta crisis, uh, I, I think the meta crisis is attempting, I mean, not putting agency behind it exactly, but there is a, a lesson to be learned in it in that 
living differently with relationship to time and the planet is really important for our species to attempt right now, right? Like either we are going to actualize this as communities and, and, and metamodern spiritual practices and a new cultural sensibility, or it's going to be, as, as Jung says, visited upon us as something coming from the outside as disaster, as catastrophe. And I do think we are in that existential precipice at the moment, you know? So whether or not we can manifest that and scale it up and change the world, I mean, the world has already scaled up that reality in terms of living a perspectively and integrally. It's up to us to fulfill that in our own lives. Um, and hopefully enough of us to do that, um, that can answer this crisis, as you're saying, like, what can we do? There's an urgency um, in the in the, in the the present that we have to respond to. Let me throw this into the mix. Um, so yeah, I started this um, metamodern spirituality Facebook group, and it seems to be really generating some really interesting conversations. And I'm really excited about that. And one of these things is, um, I'm interested in trying to kind of get uh, some descriptions and, and definitions very provisionally about, you know, what is this, what is this sensibility and what are we aiming at and for, and what's the paradigm? So um, you, you threw your hat into the ring and I could read that and maybe you could kind of potentially break it down a little bit. I'm, I'm a lot of it obviously echoes a lot of what we've already been talking about. Um, but uh, for a description of metamodern spirituality, uh, you speak of it as quote, a freeing up our modern cultural sensibilities which have tended towards abstraction and transcendence, allowing the plasticity and mutual learning afforded by the oscillation between the traditional slash modern tensions to regenerate, retrieve, and realize the non-modern, allowing us to become terrestrial, Latour. From sense-directed thinking to senseful awareing and intensified transparent presence, Gebser. In Gebser's language, the aperspectival turn in spirituality is one from religio to preligio, an obligation to the present. So a lot of that we have already discussed in terms of Gebser's, you know, preligio, this, this obligation to the present, the terrestrial ideas uh, in this concretization. Um, I think, and again, also, and then this, this, this idea of kind of you, you, you talk about as freeing up our cultural sensibilities um, towards abstraction and, and transcendence that we kind of get from, from modernity. Uh, but there is this sort of, um, there is this multi-cultural code integration that, that seems to be at the, at the, really the heart of a lot of this. There's, there's modernity, there's traditional, there's indigenous, there's, there's postmodern, and, and it's all sort of there. Um, and, so I, I, that to me definitely seems to be a component uh, to a lot of this that I'm that I'm seeing from from different people. It's this sort of attempt, and of course, obviously, the whole kind of integral uh, connections here become very salient. Where there's this attempt to kind of uh, kind of take stock of what uh, civilization or humanity has sort of where we've been and and what can we gain from the past. Um, and, 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 and then as part of that is also filtering and sort of saying, well, potentially maybe what, what doesn't work though. Um, you haven't necessarily spoken to that specifically yourself, so I wouldn't want to put those words in your mouth, but there does seem to be this sense of, um, we've kind of reached this point in, in, in cultural development where we can take stock of all these different modalities of the human experience, 
um, just to use Lena Anderson's kind of cultural codes, you know, there's the indigenous, the traditional, uh, the modern, the postmodern, and now this metamodern thing is sort of trying to take them all into account and, and as it were, kind of take the best and, and, and leave maybe the dross. Um, one, I mean, does that, does that, do you resonate with that sort of uh, thinking about at least kind of the the framework for a lot of this? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, just briefly, to, and you can follow up on this, uh, recognizing how all of those different cultural codes or, or structures of consciousness co-constitute us as a human being, right? And are actually, whether or not we recognize informing the cultural crisis of the present, right? And whether or not we're going to make it through this. So, mm -hmm. so they, they co-inform us as integral human beings in the present, recognizing that and finding ways to, um, the nuance would be finding ways to allow, let's say the traditional or indigenous or the, in Gepser's language, the magical and the mythical, um, finding ways for those to be concretized on their own terms not in relation necessarily to the modern, right? We're not looking back on those things and subsuming them into a, a synthesis of the modern. There's a weird, there's a weirdness in this in that the past and the and the the more immediate in terms of become, being moderns and secular, um, there's a transparency between the two where one isn't overruling the other, but part of this stranger sense of the whole, this open sense of the whole, the, the spiritual present that Gebser talks about. Um, there's a mutuality that we're getting familiar with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what I was trying to talk about in the, in yeah. The, and there's the certain, certainly can be this sort of developmental fallacy. You can almost call it that like whatever has most recently developed is somehow the end all it's like, this is, you know, it's, it's like thinking part of a thought that I've had in, in sort of exploring these developmental models is like thinking about the development of the human brain and, you know, from the, you know, amygdala out to the, you know, prefrontal cortex or something. And, you know, a lot of our sort of rational thinking supposedly does happen kind of in, in this frontal lobe area, right? Um, but, but that isn't to say that our lives should be lived from that, you know, part of ourselves. Um, there's, there's all that other stuff of us that's, that's operating and going on simultaneously as a human being. It's all in the present it's all accessible in this moment um one of the thoughts though you know so like this again is sort of an interesting question that i don't really know how to resolve it at this point which is so there are these sorts of different uh modalities and and let's say i'm on a soccer team i don't know and uh i'm i'm once I get out on the field, I just access this part of myself. That's just, you know, this kind of like, I'm going to go out there and win this adrenaline. I don't know, cocktail, testosterone, whatever it is kind of kicks in. And now I'm operating from this like deep competitive, going to do this thing. And I'm just going to, I'm going to crush it. I'm going to kill it. And I'm this, this other part of me comes online. Uh, game ends. And I get a call from my boss. Hey, hello. And now I'm suddenly, you know, in this other kind of sphere, right? So thinking about it in that way, there's sort of like, there are all these different modalities that are accessible uh, in the present. But then my question about that is, because um, you were saying it's not necessarily trying to find some synthesis with the modern. Um, and this is really my big question is like, 
to what degree do we allow these modalities to kind of work on their own terms? And, or to what degree do we try to synthesize them into a broader whole, a bigger whole? Um, and where a lot of this becomes very, I think where the rubber starts hitting the road on some of this is that I think that a lot of, um, you know, the modality behind say a, a lot of fundamentalism is, is I think akin to um, a kind of magic or uh, mythical thinking that, that might've been a, a dominant mode um, in the past, but often doesn't serve us today after modern science and being able to say, hey, where did say the earth come from or what have you? Um, we have stories and narratives and an, and an understanding about that that can, that can answer that question rather, you know, sufficiently, at least as a descriptor, as a, as a, as a story of just explanatory power, it does that. Um, so then it, my question is then how do we deal with this sort of seemingly mutually exclusive different modalities if okay i can jump into this sort of modern yeah you know the the earth evolved out of this these gas particles and dust particles around the earth over billions of years does that mean i'm also free you know to say whenever i want to hop into this uh you know mythic modality that the the earth was invented or created by some craftsman demiurge god or something or you know so it's like these things can create these cognitive dissonances and mutually exclusive options that um yes they're all available in the present but it also seems like we would benefit by trying to form some sort of a synthesis from them so what are your thoughts about that conundrum mm. It's a good conundrum. You know, I, I think part of this is is, is developing a, a sensibility about how they relate in the present. Like you mentioned, uh, like, okay, the earth is 6,000 years old as a kind of example of a mythical literalism. And I, I don't know if, if, if that would really apply to, to traditional cultures since they didn't have a distinction between the literal and, and the symbolic, right? They were kind of fused or, or continuous with one another. So even our forms of myth that are retrievals are weird literalized forms of, of pre-modern cultures. So, so, I mean, I don't even know if, if mythic literalists of the present are even a good example of what it means to live in myth, you know, it, it's sort of a, that, that's a sort of mental mentality right. that sort of literalized the mythical participation in a time in a context that we don't really, it takes work to really to, to to get into contact with because we want to literalize it like okay you know the pre-modern world believed this about the planet or whatever but they're used they're using a such a different symbolic way of understanding so so it doesn't quite apply you know yeah no and i i hear that and that that does make these questions difficult to parse and um and i'm actually writing something about that at the moment but maybe to use a more kind of extreme example where it kind of becomes unavoidable right like let's say you know there are certain elements of of the indigenous or the magical, depending on the terminology you want to use, that we want to bring into this present that we want to operate under. Well, you know, there's also a tendency sometimes uh, to to kind of um, to you know glorify that or to to make it the sort of absolute or or like oh this is this is the thing if everyone could just do this we'd all be fine. Um, but obviously it isn't that simple either. And I mean, if you want to look at like, you know, the, the human sacrifices that have occurred, you know, in all sorts of different traditions cross-culturally, um, you know, clearly there was something at work in, in the mindset of the people doing that sort of a thing that like, yes, we drink the blood or we eat the, the 
the body and we, or, you know, if it is a cannibalistic, you know, ritual, let's just say, um, and we do that and then we get the power, you know? Um, well, it's like, that's a clear practice that is, seems to be informed by a certain uh, mentality that in modernity just doesn't match up. Right. You can, you'll look and you're like, no, you can drink that person's blood, but it's not, you know, and you can then try from a modern perspective to come up with all sorts of phenomenological models and say, well, I don't know, culturally speaking in the kind whatever. But the point being, I, I think that despite the, the, the real difference in the kind of uh, literalism that only really exists after modernity in the same way that supernaturalism only really exists after modernity because nature and supernatural doesn't even get invented till modernity. Right. So like those ideas, that's true. Those sorts of things um, are products themselves of modernity, but there are also genuine differences in like a modern perspective or for that matter, a postmodern perspective on how the world works. And I, I, I don't think we can just discount that and say that, you know, there's all some kind of a underlying continuity or something like that. Like there really are genuinely different options at, at, at work or at, at stake here. And that's what I'm curious about. And maybe better examples could be furnished, but it's like, how do we, you know, negotiate those different options? Um, you know, is it, come funeral day, do I jump back into thinking that my, my loved one's soul has ascended to heaven to live forever. And that they're, you know, like they're here with me now they're looking down on me. You often hear people use that language. Like, and I have no problem with any of that necessarily, but it's just like that it's hard. It's, I would say impossible to really do that from a modern perspective. Right. Um, so how do we, how do we do that? How do we make that work or not work? Do we just accept that it doesn't work? I don't know. I think part of it is, is there's no rational answer. I mean, there's no modern answer to hold it all together, which, hmm. which is emphasizing the, the need for something other than traditional or modern. Right. And th this is maybe to lean into Gepser a little bit here too, with, with the reflecting on this, um, uh, there's a danger, of course, in going, hey, you know, the magical animistic reality f is more vivifying and real than anything we're doing in, mo in like, I want to go talk back with the spirits and place-based thinking and local spirits or whatever, just like that whole animistic attitude and go, okay, let me go into that and drop modernity entirely. Uh, or let me go into myth and drop modernity. Like, that is insufficient answer. Like Gibster says, you can't just go into those. And we we may actually have a tendency to do that because of how our relationship with those structures of consciousness have been so atrophied and repressed and severed and dissociated. When they do crop up, we do want to oscillate wildly into them. And they do show up in these kind of malformed mythical literalisms of the present or totalizing mass movements, right? Uh, where we kind of oscillate between total atomization and then total collectivity. Like there's no in between, um, which is more of the conditions of the present. But he's saying there, there is something about, and he calls it this irrational, a perspectival attitude uh, that can hold it all together. And it's confounding. It's not sufficient enough for the modernist. It's not rational enough. The, the, the modernist wants it all to make sense in a synthesis, to hold it all together conceptually. And the world is fundamentally saying no. But it's also saying there is a distinction to make, a careful one, the one you're pointing out, which is 
it's not it's not enough to just allow the magic to take over or the mythic it's not enough to hold the center as the, the modern secular anymore there's something in and through that supersedes any of these orientations which actually makes us up and part of the 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 challenge for us today in our own cultural evolution is being able to figure that out actually and and it's not going to be the things that we want it's not going to be a map that tells us how it all is ordered together right um yeah it's like there's it's an like aliveness there's, to it it's like to use a crude example but it's like modernity is a program you know let's say a certain kind of indigenous animism is a program and they're kind of incommensurable uh codes but the operating system the kind of basic thing that can run them both is in the background of it all and it's like if we could be aware of that then we wouldn't be trying to you know, make an apple an orange or an orange an apple, we could just be aware that there's some space that can hold both apples and oranges. And that's the whole that kind of, it doesn't tie them. I mean, you could, well, it's all metaphorical, I suppose, at this angle, but it's like, it, it doesn't really tie them together as much as um, just create a space in which they all <laughs> simultaneously, and I guess this is the thing, kind of are ever present. They're they're ever uh, they're they're all there at once in in some way. Where the the, the spirituality comes in there too is 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 the sense that um, there is some depth of being in the world in which they all are participating in whole, right? In that sense, like there is a wholeness to them. It doesn't seem to be a rational wholeness or a mythical uh, mandalic complementarity or a magical unity or, it, or again, or a rational synthesis, but there is a sense that it's all open and together, right? The fundamentally reality is open in this intensity that Gebser is pointing to. Um, and that I think, you know, again, pointing to like Neri Oxman's work in a more mundane level of like, um, recognizing that transdisciplinarity is almost like an ontology. Like uh, she brings up this concept of the knot, the knotty object, like a tying a knot, that anything that we see is actually this like kind of pluriform thing, which has, um, can be viewed from not only different disciplines, but also is entangled in everything. Everything's entangled in everything. So there is a sense that, yeah, there is a reality behind all this or through all this that's, that's, um, as Gebser says in his language, he calls it origin. He goes to this sort of language to say, okay, the spiritual present, this originary presence is what is, is you know, when we trace it to the roots of the world, it's, it's holding all of those different discontinuous and seemingly um, incompatible ontologies or held together in something that is way beyond our conceptuality to really hold, but isn't beyond our ability to participate in. And which is which is where we go into in terms of the spiritual. What would you make of a uh, the idea of a meta modern uh, kind of myth that that calls that thing, let's just say God, or or at least explores that idea, just kind of throws it out there. Maybe there's a maybe here's a story. Maybe here's a way of thinking about it. Um, is a lot of what I'm interested in is about creating, generating kind of novel mythic forms um, to help with with uh, kind of providing a narrative structure for some of these ideas, right? Because they can become, um, you know, 
well, maybe a way of putting it would be so much of this sort of stuff has only been explored via discursive thinking, reflective language. And, you know, whether it's, it's Wilbur or Gebser, though it does sound like Gebser has his own uh, kind of psychoactive component going on there, but certainly not the sort of thing you could just throw Gebser out, I would argue. And then people could just pick it up and be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, no. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, there's, there is, a, I think, a need to try to convert some of these ideas into a, a kind of mythopoetic language that can, that can, it's like, oh, I, you know, that, that makes sense. Um, and, and so much of that is, is just as simple as sort of finding the right metaphors that seem to work. But, um, uh, but in terms of talking about a metamodern spirituality, I mean, is, would you feel comfortable in that sort of mythopoetic space, you know, thinking of it in those terms? In terms of God? In, or, terms, or just... of, uh, in terms of, you know, connecting this idea of the sort of background space that allows all these distinct ontologies to somehow also be operating um, simultaneously without, I don't know, you know, without having to be reducible to e to each other. Um, yes, then 100%. Yeah. Like the mythopoetic, the creative, just we have to find ways to articulate this. And I think you're right to go to the, the creative to find that new, as Gebster says, the new statement, right? Um, what's the new language for it? Uh, it might be in poetry, it might be in some form of film or different forms of art, um, but something that is, um, you know, Gebster's catalytic in an intellectual way, he's psychoactive, but you have to have the mind to be able to engage in, in a text like that. I think there, I mean, if this is true, if there is this originary presence that's behind things and through things and responsible for things coming into being, then we ought to be able to express it in, in manifold ways and many of them poetic yeah. and creative. Yeah, well, exactly right. And I mean, my thought would be, you know, just to use the language, I can't quote you verbatim, but what you just said that there's an originary presence that brings things into being and that allows things to, you know, coexist and all that. I mean, uh, it's not much of a stretch to kind of um, bring that into dialogue with, you know, notions of of the divine as it was even articulated by people like Augustine or the Neoplatonists or something like that, right? Um, it's not to equate them. I'm just saying that there'd be some kind of a, in the sense, and again, this all goes back to my question of how do we take some of these ideas and, and allow them to be accessible without diluting them or flattening them in a way, but still make them bring them to an accessible uh, awareness and a popular understanding, generally speaking, um, in, in a way that still re retains its potency. And, um, and so with the million asterisks and qualifiers that we get from postmodernism and recognizing that these are, you know, uh, metaphors and symbols and whatnot, but just from trying to engage in sort of a mythopoetic practice of like, uh, what if we were to cultivate a mythology or at least again, just sort of one iteration or version of it, just some myth, let's just say where, where this language comes out, where we could talk about that originary presence as God, um, would that be helpful uh, in terms of, and here I, I would posit that could be helpful, I'll put it that way, for uh, making a real difference in the world by allowing people to, uh, to have a spiritual connection to the idea that different 
ontologies are possible that aren't reducible to each other, which therefore I would think would would breed, would engender a kind of uh, pluralism, would engender a kind of openness um, rather than God, as it's currently you know, kind of tends to be thought of as being a particular ontology that everything does need to kind of cohere and be reducible to. Um, so by by sort of reframing that, you're sort of expanding it and allowing a mythological poetic framing of the idea to work for people in a way that's also functional, that allows us um, maybe to, to do some work and socially kind of uh, allow things to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm all for it. I mean, uh, I have to say, like, you know, and, and for myself as well, I, I, I kind of started as an artist um, and got into thinking and philosophy and academia and so on. Um, and, and Gebser as well, he started as a poet and he was he was kind of a like a, a, a Rilke um, fanboy in a way, just to give a contemporary sense of like he was absolutely um, loving Rilke's work and he actually literally f followed in Rilke's footsteps like going on a kind of pilgrimage to the spots that Rilke did in Spain and so on so the the, the and not just poetry obviously but yeah looking for the mythopoetic um and, and even like a, working with that as a spiritual process like like the iconographer works with an image to render it transparent to the divine or the spiritual like as meta modern spiritual participators that's what we're doing like what renders origin transparent in our creative works so i'm all for that just yeah. by just well by yeah default. i mean actually yeah. that specific metaphor is why i'm the thing that i was working on am working on is called the icon precisely for that for that end there's an artistic ability or at least artistic goal from a kind of spiritual or even theological angle of trying to render the material somehow transparent to this this other engagement to to something deeper um and with 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 the in you know with the idea that um there's a great work i love it it really it was one of the most uh formative influential works probably i've i've read top five anyway um by jean-luc marion called god without being and he explores the whole idol icon idea and how those things play out in terms of um conceptions uh about uh i don't know ultimate concerns and whatnot but um rendering uh the the absolute or rendering god whatever term you want to call it as a sort of transparent um and sort of this this infinite abyss of meaning that sort of never really lands on a single point but is always kind of recedes into this ever um uh, sort of deepening appreciation for uh, that greater and greater mystery. Uh, I feel like that can, those sorts of things can, can reformulate people's understandings um, in ways that I think are, are salutary uh, to not just their themselves, but, but to the world when we desperately need spiritual language, meaning, sense in the world. And, but we don't just need any old kind, you know, it's not enough to just have a proliferation of cults and conspiracies. We need a meaning that is efficacious and works at a deep existential level, but in also in ways that allow people to flourish. And for those systems that we were talking about earlier, you know, to like kind of the 
to kind of trickle up from people's uh, collective understandings, their collective religious imaginary, whatever you want to call it, into a way that we're, we're able to live on this planet in some sustainable way uh, and in a, in a thriving way rather than in the kind of uh, um, destructive and, and disconcerting and unsustainable way that we're living in. Uh, so that's, that's sort of that gets into some of my interests in trying to, to formulate ideas around these concepts. And I think that these things, you know, could be operating in a way that, that uh, helps to that, to those ends. Um, so much of what we're experiencing now is this fragmentation and a lack of the ability to recognize different ontologies, even let alone being able to inhabit or embody different ontological spaces. Um, whereas, and I think a lot of that just comes from the preconceptions, from the you know presumptions, preformulations inherent in how people think about these things. And so, if we can reformulate them, refashion them, recontextualize them, uh, then you know, ideally, hypothetically, people could could come at these things in a way that um, is more constructive. But um, so, anyway, we'll leave it there for now. But this has been uh, an incredible conversation. Uh, I've been wanting to talk to you for some time for precisely these reasons. You just seem to have such an incisive mind and, uh, you know, your specific areas of expertise um, are, I think, very germane to a lot of these these topics. And um, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I appreciate your, uh, what you bring to these conversations and the broader conversation around metamodernity, integral theory, and, and all that, because I feel like it brings a lot of depth and nuance and some real uh, profound insight. So, um, so thank you for the stuff that you're doing. Uh, is there anything that you've got going on or that you want to make people aware of or, or uh, you know, um, put out there? Sure. And <clears throat> thanks again, Brendan. This has been great. I really love you're thinking, I would love to hear more about the, the icon project. And, and, and as you were talking and articulating that I had a whole spinoff of, of thoughts. So definitely to be continued, um, looking forward to more conversations with you. Uh, but yeah, in terms of where to find me, uh, just on, uh, in terms of the internet, uh, you can go to my Twitter, it's JDJ underscore rights. Uh, and there's a link to my Patreon there. I've got a little uh, Patreon mutations community. So we do a book club and we do Wednesday pop-up integral study salons, which are fun. We have a group of about 35, 40 folks who converge and riff in a similar manner about all sorts of things. Um, really great group. And we also have a book club that's uh, stemming out of that as well. So we've done some Ursula K. Le Guin. We're going to be doing some more integral books uh, over the year. So find me there. Um, you can also go to mutations.blog and you'll find my newsletter there. And I don't really update uh, the website itself much, but you'll get the newsletter there. So um, best places to find me. Awesome. Thank you so much. And yes, I mean, hopefully just the first of a number of conversations to come, but uh, love picking your brain. And uh, yeah, so uh, here's to more conversation. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll be talking soon, probably. Likewise, Brendan. Thank you. Take Talk care. Talk soon.